Hello, welcome to Supernatural Stories, the show where you'll hear real stories of the supernatural from real people all across Canada. I'm your host and producer of the show, Cal Goodbaum, broadcasting from Rocking Chair Studio in Toronto. I hope you enjoy the show wherever you are. Thanks for listening, leaving a review, and sharing the show with your friends. Happy Hanukkah, Happy Solstice, and Merry Christmas. I'm back with one more episode to close out 2019. I haven't made as many episodes of the podcast this year, but every one of them has been one I've put my heart and soul into in order to try and keep raising awareness about the reality of the paranormal in Canada. The topic that I'm most personally fascinated by is extrasensory perception and different psychic abilities. I've done several episodes on the topic, so go back and check them out if you haven't heard them yet. Later in this episode, we'll hear from a psychic expert, Deborah Lynn Katz, as well as Stacy, a local fortune teller. But first, there's a type of game related to fortune telling that most everyone is familiar with, and clearly, since it's in the title of this episode, we'll have a story about one, the Ouija board also known as a spirit board or talking board, was first introduced to the world in 1890 during a period of intense interest in contacting spirits, a time known as the Neo-Gothic period. While scientists and skeptics have since its invention offered explanations for the Ouija board based off of unconscious movements, the board still fascinates generation after generation of users. And along with the fun of using the board, many people have their own spooky stories related to something that happened when they were playing with the Ouija. Here's a story from a return storyteller, Sonia, about a night her family will never forget. The story started in rural New Brunswick, which is where I'm from, at Christmas time in the early 80s. I think it was around 1982. My uncle got a Ouija board for Christmas. He uh, is about nine years older than me, so he was in his early 20s. And uh, we were pretty stoked to see that he got that as a gift. Christmas dinner was over. The house had been packed full of people. Now there was still a lot of people there, but not nearly as many. And he was opening the game box and examining everything inside it, trying to figure out who he wanted to play the game with. There was lots of people that wanted to, but I think being a mischievous sort of human being, he was trying to zero in on somebody who was maybe reluctant. And he zeroed in on a great aunt who was in her late 80s. Her name was Olivia. She definitely did not want to play the game. She pretended she didn't know what it was. And maybe she actually didn't know what it was and was declining politely. He kept at her and kept nagging and cajoling and whining. And she kept saying no, no, and saying she didn't know what to do. And why wouldn't he get someone young to play with him? Eventually, he had her by the hands and was dragging her over to where the board was set up and sort of seats her across from him and has her hands in his. And he's explaining to her what to do. And she's trying to pull her hands away. She doesn't want to play. And we're all laughing and enjoying all of this back and forth. It's entertainment for the whole family. She's saying a firmer no, that she doesn't want to play. He's not going to take any part of no. He's still holding on to her hands. So he places her hands on the planchette and his hands as well. She says, no, it doesn't like me and pushes away from the board, 
So the planchette goes sort of flying toward my uncle, and that's when the power goes out. <laughs> so, of course, there's 20 people gasping at the timing of this. You know, as a rational human being, we did live in the country. It was in the winter. And, you know, the power goes out. That's what happens. But we could see out the window our neighbor, our nearest neighbor across the country road. We could see that their lights were on. So out came the oil lamps, but no one did play the game. That just sort of created lots of loud chatter and whatnot, and the game was forgotten and didn't get played. Oh, it would have been creepy to play it with only the lighting from the oil lamp. <laughs> I don't think he could have found someone to join him at that point. Especially the older folks. They wanted nothing to do with it. And I don't know if um, my aunt actually felt that it didn't like her, like she said. But she wanted nothing to do with it. Nothing to do with it at all. Fast forward about five or six years. The same house, the same old farmhouse. This house is very old at least 200 years old, probably older than that. So there's lots of creepy factor to this house. It was another evening, I think it was the fall, and I had a boyfriend, and my brother and I were telling him tales of the family, you know, making him laugh and entertaining him. And the story of the Ouija board and Christmas came out, and he was very skeptical. He said he didn't believe that that happened and didn't believe that any such thing could have any power. He was a good Catholic boy from Newfoundland and felt very superior about the whole thing. So my brother and I, being the tormentors that we are, we accepted that. But then we said, okay, we accept your position <laughs> and we challenge you. <laughs> so we basically told him, well, if, you're, if you don't feel that it has any power, then we'll go get the board and... We'll have a little look see and see if it see if it works. See if it works. See if it works. So he said, Yeah, sure, sure, go ahead, get the board. But I could tell that he was not nearly so brave at that point. The house had a second story. On the second story was a large landing with the railing to the exposed stairwell. Sort of a perimeter all the way around and at the end of the landing was a tall armoire with all the board games for like three or four generations all stacked on top as you can imagine the weight of all these games sort of crushes boxes that are underneath over time so <laughs> the stacks are kind of precariously balanced up there i'm not particularly tall but i went up to go get the game and the game was sort of halfway up buried inside one of these stacks so I'm trying to hold the top portion of a stack and pull this box out. Like Jenga, like a giant version <laughs> of Jenga. Yes, exactly, exactly. Board game, board game Jenga. So I'm pulling the Ouija board game out. As I pull it, the side really decides to squish and flatten down, and that makes the whole top of the stack lean to one side. I just, I just let it go. So probably a dozen board games go crashing down into the stairwell. Down the stairs, bouncing and flying around, board pieces and dice and boxes, you name it. The stairwell has a cutout between the stairs and the living room proper. So parts of the game and 
dice and whatnot would have gone through that cutout into the room where my brother and my boyfriend were. So an almighty crash. In the meantime, the cat had followed me halfway up the stairs and is sitting there watching me and all this stuff falls down on top of the cat. The cat goes leaping through the cutout in the wall, which essentially sends it flying at face height at my brother and my boyfriend <laughs> who are sitting on a sofa. <laughs> so there's this huge crash, all of this chaos crashing down the stairs and this cat flying at them through the through the cutout <laughs> i'm laughing hysterically because i know what's going to happen they of course were unaware of anything until it came upon them i can hear my brother laughing i get downstairs with the game and my boyfriend is not amused He's had a really bad fright. My brother tells me later that he jumped straight up off the sofa. Of course, any normal human being would. So now I'm grinning and I have the game in hand. Sort of plunk it down on the coffee table and go to lift the lid off. And he just basically taps out. He says, nope, not going to have anything to do with it. And he literally leaves. He just gets up and he leaves. My brother and I continued to tease him all the way out to his vehicle, but he still would not come back in. He was way too scared. We didn't play the game that night. You know, we had cleaned up the mess and put the games back and back it went in the stack. I can't recall anybody ever actually playing with it. Imagine if the first time you played with it, it did give you a message right away and it said, I've been waiting for this. Just as Ouija board is often the first way in which many people try to reach out to spirits, so too are tarot cards often an introduction into fortune-telling and precognition. For many Europeans, tarot is just a card game. For others, it is feared as witchcraft. The truth is, there is a very occult origin to the tarot cards, dating back hundreds of years as a means of conveying hidden teachings. As with all things, I won't vouch for your local neighborhood tarot reader, but I will say that tarot decks are fascinating, and so are these next stories from Stacy. Last episode, you heard a haunted house story from her. Here she is back again to share stories about her weird psychic experiences. I have a trippy psychic story. And this story, it kind of just shows you the power of like instant manifestation. Five or six years ago, I don't know. I was living in this mansion. And I remember waking up one morning and I said, I really need to go see a psychic because there was all these changes happening in my life. But I didn't know where to go. Like, I, you know, I didn't want to go to some flashy neon sign. I never, I never trust the neon sign. No, hell no. <laughs> and uh, I didn't, I didn't want to like, you know, get a tarot reading from a friend because they know a lot about me. So I, you know, I just wanted someone that I didn't know. But I really couldn't think of where to go. And so at that time, I was actually, I was started, I was reading tarot cards on the street. And so I said, okay, whatever, I'm going to go do some, read some tarot cards on the street. So I did that and I made a little bit of money. And I remember that there was this um, psychic on College Street and she didn't have a neon sign. Her, Her sign looked nice. And I thought, okay, you know what? Maybe I'll go there. But first... I need an espresso because I'm Italian. <laughs> and so I I walk into, you know, that corner espresso shop. Um, well, it's not there anymore, but it was at uh, Baldwin and uh, Augusta. 
It's been there forever. Yeah, yeah, of course. It's a coffee shop. Yeah. So I walk in and I'm about to order a coffee. And before I do, I'm energetically pulled out backwards and brought out back onto the street. And everything around me is spinning. And I'm like, I'm completely sober and hydrated. (laughs) And there's this one man standing there. He was from India, he would like had a turban on and he said, you're a very lucky girl. (laughs) The past couple years have been very difficult for you, but the next six months are gonna be amazing. And I said, who are you? And he said, I'm a psychic and I'm here to help you. (laughs) Like, what the Like seriously, seriously. And so everything stops spinning and then we sit down on a bench and he, he reads my palm and, um, he puts this like sheet of paper in my hand and I guess he did some mentalism kind of stuff. Cause he told me to pick like a flower, a color and a number and he got it all correct. I don't care what he was doing. He helped me in that moment. And it was just like, here, take my money. Like you did it. But it was just, it was just so cool because you, you like, you think of something and then boom, it happens like literally that same day. You left backwards from espresso. Yeah. It was like, it was, yeah. Like he, he pulled me out and like, like everything was spinning around me. Like I was in this trance except for him. You hear about that happening in stories of people meeting gurus? And the next week, I was walking down the street and some lady just stops me. And she said, are you a belly dancer? And I was totally like not dressed like a dancer at all. And I said, yeah, how did you know? And she said, oh, I just like, I'm psychic. I can just tell. She's like, can I give you a reading? <laughs> I was like, I'm really broke. I'm sorry. And she's like, no, don't worry. Don't worry. My apartment is right up there. Please just come. I feel like I really need to read you. And so I go up to her apartment and she pulls out a bottle of wine <laughs> and she, yeah, she gives me a tarot card reading. It's very good and very accurate, but she starts getting pretty drunk. <laughs> this is oddly reminiscent of an experience I had. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, tell me. No, fish. Fish, fish sorry. story. I, I don't know. She got pretty drunk by then. And then I was like, you know, I was there for quite some time. And I, you know, it was time for me to leave. I was leaving and she like pulled one final card. Maybe, maybe I know what it is right now. But at the time I didn't. But it was funny because she's just like, I'm trying to leave. And she just kept opening the door and telling me things. And I was like, oh, I gotta go. <laughs> I actually called her, I think, like a year later because I wanted to see her again, but I didn't get a response. Darn. (laughs) I find like all my psychic experiences, like from getting readings from people, is not because I'm going to someone to like get a reading. They always sort of come to me. And so another time in Dufferin Grove Park, I was sitting on the ground and this lady was on the bench. She's like, do you want to sit on the bench? And I said, no, I'm pretty fine here. But all these ants just started coming. <laughs> and so I said, okay, you know what? I'm going to sit on the bench now. All the ants are coming. And she's like, yeah, that, that's good. So we sit down and she stares at me. She's like, Archangel Michael is standing right behind you. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> what? <laughs> but she said that. And then she, she said, yeah, she's like, yeah, I'm actually really psychic. And I study the tarot and everything. And I can see angels and beings. And she, and she told me that she saw that. And Archangel Michael gets around, man. He gets around, yeah, because this, this is a common thing. First time I ever had a real serious tarot reading, I was at this party, and I wasn't enjoying myself. So I just, like, walked out, 
And then on the, um, as I'm walking out, this girl was there and she just said, can I read your tarot? Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh yeah, this is what I was looking for. Here we go. <laughs> she read my tarot and it was super accurate. If you have your own story to share on the show, please get in touch. And if you're one of the people I was talking with about having on who I lost touch with and did not respond to, it's nothing personal and I hope to get you on the show soon. You can send a message on Facebook at the Supernatural Stories page or to SupernaturalStoriesCanada at gmail.com. That's all one word, SupernaturalStoriesCanada at gmail.com. This next storyteller was referred to me by the family of the late, great Ingo Swan. Ingo was a famous artist. You can go on Google and take a look at some of his intense visionary paintings. On top of that, he was also a valuable psychic, an asset of the CIA and U.S. military. If you've ever read the book, The Men Who Stare at Goats, or seen the horrible film adaptation with George Clooney, you probably know that for decades, the U.S. engaged in top-secret research into psychic abilities. Mainly, it was to train people to be able to use clairvoyance to see into secret facilities in the Soviet Union where satellites couldn't see. I'm really not making this up. Go look it up. Nowadays, the kind of psychic training techniques that were developed at Stanford Research Institute are influencing a new generation as people train their psychic abilities through services such as that offered by Deborah Lynn Katz. If you're interested, you can look her up and get in touch. Now here's a mind-blowing story about her and her psychic twin sister. My son was in high school. He was going to be at this robotics competition, and I was meeting him there. And as I got up to the school, I started to have these flashes of a teenager being tortured. And I was like, oh my God, what's going on here? And I got all confused because I was actually going to be going into a place where there were these teenagers. I was thinking maybe something is happening to somebody in here. So I got in there and I'm watching the competition and I start to like, I'm feeling all these feelings like about somebody being tortured and I'm getting more and more anxious and more and more confused because I'm looking around to see who might be the torturer around me. Usually I have different grounding techniques and centering techniques, and none of those were working. So I was like, you know, I'm going to check in with my sister, who she was, like, living three hours away from me, and I hadn't talked to her in a few weeks. And so I texted her, and I said, what are you doing right now? And she texted me back, and she says, I'm having a therapeutic session with one of my classmates and she was in the psychotherapy program at Pacifica University and she said we're having this therapy session and at this point she just she stopped texting and she called and she said that she just had the most incredible session with someone who had as a teenager had been kidnapped by some kind of cult leader and had been kidnapped and held hostage for nine months and and tortured. And they had just had this session, and then she had been telling the woman 
that she really needed to meet with her twin sister, me, and, and read my books and get a session from me. So I said to her, you know, thanks a lot, because I just had an hour of being totally freaked out here. So I think that happened because she had been talking about me to her practice partner for therapy while she had been thinking about me and talking about me. And that's what ended up having me have that connection. And I think, too, that maybe it was so strong just because I was around other teenagers. And maybe even because there's all this in a robotics competition, you've got all this technology everywhere going on. I think maybe if I had just been at home in a quiet space, I would have experienced this, but it wouldn't have been so confusing or disorienting. Finally, seen as we are in this final week before Christmas and Hanukkah, it seemed fitting to share this next story about a church in the former Yugoslavia. It was shared with me by Ali from Mississauga, Ontario. Remember, everyone, to keep the spirit of brotherly love, whether you are Christian or not, and be grateful that we get to live in this peaceful country, Canada. the age of three and five, the violence really started to hit a peak across the country. What we used to do in the rural areas, the village was called Trebinia. I used to spend a lot of my nights in the barn with the rest of the kids that were there. My cousins and their friends, they were much older than me, maybe 13 years old. The oldest of them had been like 16. I used to fall asleep in the barn listening to people talk. If I really think about it, I can still remember the smell of hay. I was going from village to village, city to city. I don't know, it was a sense of, like, survival as a kid, right? You had to be running. You follow to survive kind of thing. I finally came back to my mom and dad. started having a hard time sleeping, and I remember my great-grandmother's house, which is where we stayed when I was about four or five years old before we left that particular region. It was across the church. The top levels of the church always had lights, and these lights used to be quite intense. I remember thinking to myself, when are the lights going to go out? The bombings were practically dropping all around us. Every day, (laughs) day after day, there's a bomb that drops somewhere to think that the light in that church still stayed on. My mom was very young at the time, no more than 27, 28 probably. can only imagine how much trust that was on her. My dad, he was serving at the time. 
One day he shows up and he said, we're all going. He packs us up. And I remember the night before we leave, the light in that church went out. The day after we left, that area exactly where we were, a bomb dropped on it. If we had been just one day later, probably wouldn't be here. The light in that church went out as if to say, you have to go. It wouldn't be a very Ouija Christmas episode without one more story about a Ouija board. Ali was able to make it into the studio to share this next story. So I was 15. And it was a very pivotal time for me where I was getting very interested into the deeper meaning of the supernatural, the spiritual meaning behind it all. I became fascinated with Ouija boards. One time I went to the convenience store just on the street from where we lived. I saw this one Ouija board, smaller than a standard one. It was the crystal pick that really attracted me to it. It was very pretty, so I thought, I really want this one. So I managed to get my mom to cough up $10 at the time to buy it for me. So I took it home, and I waited until late into the night. So I lit the purple candles, because purple candles were supposed to help inspire you to tap into your psychic side. And I laid out the Ouija board with the crystal on top of it. I still remember that it was in the bottom left corner, which is where I left it. And it was about nine minutes to midnight. I remember looking at the clock that was on my wall. I wanted to wait for my parents to go to bed, and they usually went to bed around midnight. I wanted to be completely alone to experience with the supernatural or whatever, because, you know, I was a dumb teenager. My mom calls me down, which was very unusual at the time. She never really called me down so late at night for anything. When I came back up, however, the crystal pick was gone. I actually spent all night until daylight trying to find that pick, and I was not able to. If anything even dropped, I would have been able to hear it. The walls there were very thin, and I never did find it. These have all been real stories from real people across Canada. The music featured in this episode was from Sara with Degrowth Part 2, Fanes with 80s Interlude, Superpose with The Haunted House, Peglica e Commandos with Kether Gotha, John Fahey with A Christmas Melody, and Blue Dot Sessions with A Lakeside Path and A Catalog of Seasons. The rest were original tracks. Thank you for listening to Supernatural Stories, and thanks for telling your friends about the show and supporting a place for the supernatural in Canada. There isn't another thing like this for people to share these stories, and there won't be unless you support it by letting people know about it. At www.supernaturalstories.ca you can get in touch. If you'd like to contribute a dollar per month or more to this independent podcast, go to patreon.com slash supernaturalstories. Till next time. Mm-hmm.